Las buenas gentes siempre presumen, presumen de que conocen el camino hacia la felicidad, de que conocen lo mejor donde salir de fiesta y que conocen al grupo musical referente aquí en esta ciudad. Yo soy Moon Cresta y vamos a hacer el pulso, vamos a ir a la calle, vivimos... Oh, good listener, you have found the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. Once again, uh, I am your host, Sean. And uh, before I go on any further, there might be a couple of uh, minor changes uh, this time around. For one thing, I'm using a different setting. I always record this podcast using uh, GarageBand, which is the... Uh, the built-in multi-track recording software that comes with, uh, comes with all Macs. And I usually have it set for male narrator, but this time I'm trying male radio just to see how that sounds. So if my voice sounds a little bit different, it's because of that, I guess, just, uh, the EQ, I suppose. Uh, the other thing is, uh, one of my neighbors is, uh, using a leaf blower or something. So you might hear a buzzing in the background. And if you do, it's probably the, leaf blower outside. Uh, windows are closed, so uh, I apologize for all of that. But um, anyway, today's episode is going to be talking about Moon Cresta, a homebrew by someone we don't really hear much about, uh, some guy named Bob DiCrescenzo, uh, Pac-Man Plus and Atari Age. Anybody ever hear of him? Yeah. Before we get into that, just a few things I can kind of babble about. First off, uh, previous episode, episode 22, I talked about sick pickles. Well, it turns out after that episode, I don't know if the podcast has anything to do with it, but uh, Breck Brixie has posted on Atari Age. He's thinking about revisiting that project. Not much has been said about what would be done with sick pickles um, if the plan does come to fruition, other than Breck might increase the speed of the mouth opening and closing. And also something he's toying with is if he does put sick pickles out on a cartridge, he might have an option in which you can just get the bare bones board itself, just the little uh, printed circuit board with all the stuff on it without the cartridge shell, which would cut down on the cost, which um, from what I can tell, some people are actually quite in favor of that. And, uh, I would jump at that opportunity, except that uh, I don't really have any cartridge shells to spare. <laughs> I had a pole position two, an extra pole position two that I was uh, just that was just laying around, and I recently used that as a case for my Mateos cart, following uh, Jimmy G's instructions. Uh, in fact, I have it right here in front of me. Here, I'll hold it up to the microphone so you can see that. See, isn't that isn't that neat? And uh, the only thing is the pole position two label is partially, well, mostly intact with some tears in it. And it looks really awful. <laughs> I haven't figured out how to properly remove the label. Or maybe what I could do is, um, you know, that store Anthropologie or however it's pronounced, how they have all those weird things. They would probably sell this thing for like $2,000. So maybe that could be something. But uh, And on top of all that, I plan to get a second Mateos cart because of all the work in progress stuff that's come out and uh, some of the homebrews that weren't ever put on a cartridge or haven't been on a cartridge in a long time because the current Mateos card I have, I have it set for um, 144K ROMs, which means that it's, even though it's a 16 in one cart, it's been reduced to eight in one because if you have it in that setting, it requires two slots per ROM. And I also have a pokey on this, so I'm thinking maybe I'll reserve this one for just pokey and bigger ROMs, and the other one I'll use for the smaller ones, But and I won't need a pokey for that one, but I don't know. But what was I saying again? Oh yeah, Breck, uh, Sick Pickles, yeah, so that's uh, some new information about Sick Pickles, and of course, I will keep up with the news on that. And I got a little bit of feedback about the previous episode. Uh, longtime friend of both this podcast and Pie Factory podcast, Keith Sheehan, said about when I mentioned Sven Gulli and how the original Screaming Yellow Theater show, the title card with the name of the movie and all that would be on the screen with Link Ray's Rumble playing in the background. Well, Keith says, and I quote, my dad had an oldies tape that had the rumble song along with several other guitar instrumentals. He played that damn thing to death and it drove us nuts, but it was a pleasant surprise because it reminded me of him. Well, thank you for sharing that Keith. Does everybody's dad have something that he, he drive the kids nuts with? Like my dad, 
I don't know why my, my brother and I still give him a hard time over this from time to time. <laughs> when I was a little kid and my brother was not quite a little kid cause he's 10 years older than me, but my dad would play that horrible, horrible song feelings all the time. <laughs> it was in regular rotation on his stack of singles. I remember he played that a lot. He played, um, I re- the, I remember Hank Williams album by Glenn Campbell. He'd play that all the time. But uh, I don't know. Thank you for sharing that, Keith. Uh, and I, uh, yeah, and I know my my wife talks about this Hot Rod album that her dad used to play all the time. And uh, sadly, he's been gone for about twenty years. I never got to meet my father in law, but she talks about that quite fondly. The Hot Rod album that he would play all the time. So, uh, what else do I have to talk about? Oh, you know what? I'm recording this intro on Sunday, October 29th, and. Uh, Not long before I recorded this, I went out for a bike ride. And um, those of you who are new to this podcast, uh, what you might not know is that I live in Chicago. So I took a bike ride. I went up and down Clark Street, which is a pretty busy street throughout Chicago. I wasn't planning to do this, but there's a video game store about three blocks south of Wrigley Field. It's called People Play Games. And uh, just on a whim, I decided, you know what, why don't I just pull over and see if they have anything? I've been there before. Uh, I got to say, their console prices are freaking outrageous. They're, They're ridiculous. Well, I can't really say that I blame them for the high console prices because, well, I have a feeling that where people play games is located in the neighborhood that they are, that their rent is extremely high and they have to kind of make up for it somehow. So I'm going to give them a little pass on that one. But their prices on individual games and sometimes controllers and things, their prices are pretty fair. They're not the greatest in the world, but they'll do the job. Like if you just want to run in and buy a few games, you'll probably find some that you want for pretty reasonable prices. And uh, I actually did. I found a few Atari 2600 CIBs that I wanted. One that I got was Breakout because I did not have a complete inbox Breakout. I just have a loose cartridge, so I wanted to upgrade that, and I did. It's a text variety, so I was really happy with that. I'm not a big fan of the Breakout game. I don't like this whole idea of only two levels, but what are you going to do? What are you going to do? At least I have a complete copy now, so that means one more cartridge I can ship out to Atari Age sometime once when it's I uh, build up a good collection of those. I also bought Bridge, the uh, Activision game for the 2600, uh, complete in box. They had that for pretty reasonable price, just a few bucks. And I bought it because, well, I don't know how to play bridge, but I bought it anyway. Number one, to complete my collection, which I'm a far, far, far long way from doing. But uh, I bought it because apparently bridge on the 2600 is becoming scarce. And I wanted to make sure I could get it while it was still a reasonable price. But um, I, I do have a memory about Activision Bridge, though. When I was in fourth grade, when I played on the intramural basketball team, one of the intramural basketball teams at my grade school, we had a end-of-season party at the coach's house. The co- one of the coach's sons also played on my team, so it was at their house. And I remember at one point somebody busted out the Atari, and we were just playing all kinds of different games and bridge was one of them. So someone's like, what's this? And they popped it in and the coach said, Oh yeah, that, that game's for me. Actually, you guys don't know how to play bridge. Trust me. You don't want to deal with it. So that was my experience with bridge. Um, I did see a boxed ball blazer. So, um, if you happen to be traveling through Chicago anytime soon, go to people play games. If you're looking for that ball blazer cartridge, they had it. Um, I, Almost wanted to buy it just so I can have a pokey source in case I ever needed a pokey chip, but I didn't think that was going to be terribly fair. And I really don't want to sacrifice a complete in-box ball blazer for that. And uh, they also had a touchdown football sealed for 7,800, but I I don't know. I just I decided against it because I, I seem to remember playing it before, and I really hated it. But what I did buy, they had pressure cooker complete in-box a little bit more money than I would have liked to have spent, but not really terribly outrageous. So I grabbed that. So now I have breakout and bridge and pressure cooker all complete in box. Also recently I acquired an Atari CX 22 trackball, and just 
this morning I realized it's kind of useless for my purposes because it's one of those rare CX-22s that doesn't have the joystick slash trackball switch on it. I didn't know about that. I didn't know there was a problem until I tried the uh, Ken Sider's centipede trackball hack and it didn't work. No matter which way you move the trackball, your little fiery thing, your shooty character goes to the right. And I was like, what? So it's a useless trackball for my, what's really interesting is that on the bottom where the switch is supposed to be, it's actually labeled, but there's no actual switch there. It's not on the board either. So I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. I will say this though. I tried it out with, with a uh, fat axle just to make sure it worked and it worked great. actually worked great in that game. And it also works great in Star Trek strategic operations simulator. I was surprised at how great that thing works in that. Actually, you didn't, you wouldn't think that'd be a good trackball game, but it turns out it is, but. So yeah, I got this trackball. I don't like, I, maybe I should try it again with a centipede TB and a seagull 78 adapter. See if maybe that helps, but, um, Hey, that's been my Atari life in the past couple of weeks. Oh, and I also have two telegames, 2600 units, the Sears things two uh, light sixers. And I've had them for months, but I've been meaning to clean them up and put uh, the AV mods in them. And, uh, I did the initial cleaning. Oh my God, they look great. They look absolutely great. I'm thinking keeping one of them and maybe using the other one either as a prize for one of the podcasts or maybe selling it off or something. But I love how those Sears six switches look. They look great. And especially after I cleaned them up, I took the, uh, I took the electronics out of the consoles And then I soaked and scrubbed the plastic in a bin full of uh, basically dishwater, really. Dish detergent that you use if you wash dishes by hand. And I soaked them for a while, used the toothbrush to to, uh, get the grime out in between the small places and let them dry overnight. In fact, it was, uh, remember Keith, I mentioned a few minutes ago with his feedback, he actually recommended using Armor All cleaning wipes as kind of a last not last resort, but it's like kind of a final step in a cleaning process. Oh my God. He was not kidding. These things look gorgeous. Now I was actually able to get rid of some stuff that, uh, previous cleaning wasn't able to do. And, uh, man, th- one of these things must've been owned by someone who smoked a lot. Cause all the yellow garbage that came off on those things, man, these Sears things look great now. And I really can't wait to do some further work on them. What I want to do, what I really want to do is do the AV mod in such a way that if someone wanted to take the mod out and restore it to its original condition, that it's totally possible, which means that I won't drill any holes into it. I think what I might be able to do is stick the audio outputs through one slot that already exists and the video through another one. But I still need to get a few cables for that, but uh, I'm going to see what I can do with that. So I'm really looking forward to that. Oh, I heard from Bill Pepper and uh, those of you who don't know who Bill Pepper is, uh, shame on you. He is the host of Atari Bytes, which is a wonderful Atari 2600, sometimes 7800 podcast in which he tells the story behind the game. Um, and by tells, I mean, um, writes the story behind the game. <laughs> he explores the story inside the game, I guess I should say, and sees if that story bites us back. And uh, he also hosts the podcast called It's a Podcast, Charlie Brown, a wonderful monthly podcast that comes out on the 15th of every month. Give it a listen. It is great. I'll put links to both of those podcasts in the show notes. But anyway, Bill says, inspired by this episode, I just ordered my first homebrew and an Atari Vox. Honestly, mostly because I love the 1960 Time Machine film that inspires this game. Thanks, Sean. Well, thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill. And uh, glad to hear that uh, you are supporting the homebrewers financially. And uh, I really hope you enjoy the game. I have no doubt that you will. It is truly, truly a wonderful. Oh, wait, what game was I talking about? Oh, Time Salvo. He was talking about episode number 20. So Time Salvo. Fantastic game. I cannot recommend it enough. Uh, And I'm sure that uh, Mike Sarna will thank you for that as well. Other than that, I don't really think there's anything else new that I should talk about. Now, what I do have to say, though, is this episode is going to be fairly short, fairly short, I believe. And I was toying with the idea of maybe talking about another homebrew, like maybe one of uh, another one of the Clark Otto Franco Dragon games, because they're small enough that you could probably do multiple of those games in one episode. But I realize 
episode 24 is going to be crystal quest featuring Bentley bear, which is going to be a huge undertaking to research. So I figured, nah, I'll just do this one game and then use the extra time to do the necessary research. So anyway, let's get into the theme of today's episode, which is moon Cresta, a homebrew version of the arcade game of the same name made by the company called Nichibutsu. So, um, let's, uh, look into Nichibutsu. Now, I wasn't really able to find out a lot about, uh, Nichibutsu. There's hardly any information out there on the web and, uh, forget even trying, uh, actual printed materials, but I'll tell you what I was able to gather about that company. Nichibutsu is one of a few brands that existed under the Umbrella Corporation. Um, I don't, I'm not sure how this is supposed to be pronounced, but I'm going to say Nihon Busan Company Limited, and they're based out of Osaka, Japan. And Nihon Busan started in 1970. And as with many video game manufacturers, they started off by selling various kinds of coin-operated amusement machines. And uh, the company was incorporated in 1972, and it began manufacturing its own products three years later, instead of uh, basically manufacturing licensed versions of other, of other materials. Nihon Busan made its public debut as a manufacturer at the Amusement Machine Show, which has since been swallowed up by the Japanese Amusement Expo. And in 1979, Nihon Busan established Nichibutsu USA Company Limited in Torrance, California. The company's first arcade games were just clones of existing games, and uh, some of those games include Attacker, Attacker Guard, Attacker Special, Attacker Black, and Attacker Ace, all of which were breakout clones. And there was Bonepaw, which was a circus clone uh, that's spelled B-O-N-P-A, by the way. And there were various games with the phrase Moon Base in them, and they were all clones of the various iterations of Space Invaders that Taito released. There was also Moon Alien, which was a Galaxian clone, Moon Cresta, which essentially was a hack of Galaxian, really, and of course you'll hear more about Moon Cresta later. Um, what else was there? There was uh, a lot of other games that had Moon in their titles, actually. There was Moon Alpha, Moon Raker, Moon Quasar, Moon Shuttle, and uh, all of these games, by the way, were released between 1978 and 1981 which is a pretty short period for so many games, which probably wasn't terribly doable if they weren't primarily knockoffs of other games. But there is one popular arcade game that came out from Nichibutsu that you might recognize, and it's called Crazy Climber, and that was from 1980. And uh, other than the titles of some of the home video games made by the company, I was not really able to find out any further information about Nichibutsu um, except for th there is a very, very poorly written Wikipedia entry that's very difficult to read. Uh, it looks like someone had a really hard time translating from Japanese to English. But uh, I was able to ascertain that Nihon Busan closed in 2014 and all its intellectual properties were transferred to Hamster Corporation, which itself is a company that produces titles for modern consoles. For example, Hamster has released both Crazy Climber and Moon Cresta for the PlayStation, PlayStation 2, and Nintendo Wii. So that's um, pretty much everything I could tell you about Nihon Busan and, of course, Nichibutsu. So I'm just going to move straight over to the arcade game Moon Cresta. Moon Cresta was designed by Shigeki Fujiwara, and the game was released in Japan in May 1980, and shortly after it was licensed to Sega Gremlin for release in North America. In my opinion, Moon Cresta kind of looks a bit like Galaxian. Remember I said before that it's actually a hack of Galaxian. Or at the very least, it has a, Gal a Galaxian visual vibe to it, which is not surprising because the arcade game itself was built on Namco Galaxian 8-bit hardware. Much like Galaxian, you control a spaceship that moves horizontally across the screen in a scrolling vertical space shooter while shooting at attacking space aliens. But let's get a bit more granular than that. At the beginning, your ship, which is actually a three-stage rocket, that rocket appears on the screen in three parts, hence three-stage, and each of those parts is identified with Roman numbers. The rocket will split up into three individual parts in the opening animation, and you start with the top part, Roman number one. If you lose a ship, then you move on to Roman number two, and if you lose another ship, you move on to uh, Roman number three. 
But anyway, we'll get a little bit more detailed than that in just a moment. But your main goal is to dock the first stage with the second stage. And then the first and second stage rockets have to dock to the third stage later on, which of course means if you lose a life, then you cannot make a complete dock of all three parts unless you get a bonus life. And before you can dock, you have to clear four waves of attackers and flying objects. And these attackers and flying objects will be among the following. The first batch are called cold eyes, and they kind of look like eyes. If you shoot one of those, you get 50 points. And then the next batch of aliens is called superflies, and they look like giant flies. And they're worth 30 points each for the ones you shoot. The next batch of um, attackers are called 4D. I don't quite really know how to describe those. If you look at a still image of them, they look kind of like butterflies. But you get 60 points for those. The next stage, there are meteors that come after you, and you get 200 points for those. And after that, you have Atomic Pile. Um, I, it's hard to, hard to describe those things. They kind of look like pen caps or something, and they eventually kind of extend, and then they look like wine bottles. Hard to, hard to describe, but you get 100 points for each one of those that you shoot. Now, the enemies don't just stay in a formation. They're actually constantly diving down at you, and they kind of circle around. And if you collide with anything that you're actually supposed to shoot, you lose a life. In the arcade version, depending on how the dip switches are set, you'll get an extra life either at 30,000 or 50,000 points, uh, assuming that you're good enough to reach 30,000 or 50,000 points. There's a reason I say that, trust me. After four attack waves happen, you are given a chance to dock with another stage of your rocket. And how do you do that? You do that by thrusting up and moving left and right as appropriately. It's a lot like Lunar Lander, in fact, except uh, it's a lot more forgiving than Lunar Lander is. But if you dock successfully, you get a bonus of a thousand points times the number of seconds left on the internal docking timer. I believe it starts at 30 seconds. I might be wrong about that. But after the dock happens, you're basically controlling a bigger rocket and it has more firepower than what your rocket had previously. Uh, just for comparison's sake, when your rocket is at only one stage, the laser cannon can only fire one laser at a time. And just like with most shooting video games, you can't fire more than one laser at a time. Before you fire again, the laser actually has to leave the screen. Multi-part rockets can shoot multiple shots at once, though. And uh, right there, that's that's the game. That's it, pretty much right there. And uh, what's interesting, though, is that I have never heard of Moon Cresta until this 7800 Homebrew came out. And I found out that not only was it an arcade game, but it actually did have several home releases, including the Commodore 64. And I was a devout Commodore 64 user for a few years, and I didn't even know about it. And uh, Mooncresta also came out on a lot of computers that really weren't released, at least not widely, in the United States, such as the ZX Spectrum or ZX Spectrum, if you're from anywhere but the United States. Uh, see, the BBC Micro also had it, the Sharp X68000 had it, as did the Amstrad CPC and Dragon 32. And the Super NES also had it, and I'm guessing by association the Super Famicom must have had it as well. So that's Mooncresta right there, specifically the arcade version and, of course, the spinoffs that were made for home. So you know what? Let's move on to the 7800 version and talk about the development history. So Mooncresta on the 7800 started out as a secret project by the famous Bob DiCrescenzo. He wanted to do Mooncresta because aside from the few home versions he knew of, only the SNES version came close to recreating the gameplay and the sound of the arcade version. However, he couldn't keep the project a secret because it turns out he was having a problem dealing with enemy movement, so on July 26, 2011, he went public with a work-in-progress ROM, some screenshots, and a plea for help, particularly if anybody was familiar with how the movement is handled in the arcade version. Other than that, the game was well on its way. Gambler172 suggested to Bob to not sweat it if the movement isn't 100% arcade perfect, but Bob said, you know what, I want it to be as close to the arcade version as possible. On July 31st, Bob posted that after he walked away from the project a few times, probably just to freshen his brain, 
he looked closer at the arcade ROM and thought that he found a table in the code that determines how the enemies move, and he hoped he could figure out how that table was used and how it could help him. On August 2nd, he posted a disassembled version of the arcade source code in hopes that someone could help him with the stumbling block he was dealing with. On August 5th, Bob posted a small chunk of the table that he found with some comments and explanations as to what each entry in the table does, including the number of frames between movements, how long the movements are done, and what direction the enemies loop, things like that. There was one entry in the table for which he couldn't figure out the purpose, though. But a couple of weeks later, when Bob found out that Opcode Games was doing a Mooncrest a homebrew for the ColecoVision that it would be a perfect clone, he said he would not be continuing with it for the Atari 7800 because he figured, well, if there's already going to be an arcade-perfect version out there, then I'm not going to step in anybody's feet. However, there were enough people who wanted it for the 7800 that made him decide, you know what, I'm going to continue with it after all. So on August 27th, Bob posted the first playable ROM with the message, and I quote, yuck, wow, does this ever need tweaking? And uh, why did he say that? Well, for one thing, the rocket docking hadn't yet been implemented. When you get to the docking screen, the game would just stop. And of course, enemy movements needed to be tweaked in various ways. On September 10th, Bob posted an updated ROM, the eyes and bees levels, as he called them, and I'm pretty sure he meant the cold eyes and superflies waves, they were ready at this point, but nothing beyond that, including the rocket docking screens. But four days later, there was a new work in progress that had all the enemies in place, still waiting for the docking screens, though, as well as some sounds, ramping up of the difficulty level, and some high-score cartridge support. Oh, and my dog came in to uh, check up on things. Hey, Ruthie. Oh, you know what? It's time for her supper. She knows how to tell time. But, uh, Ruthie, can you wait for me to finish recording this? I'll take care of you. Don't worry. Uh, yeah, my wife is uh, gone for a few more hours, so I have to deal with this. So it's not like she can take care of it. Anyway, moving on. Uh, where was I? Did I say, um, hi, my name is Sean? Yeah, I guess I did. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, September 28th. On September 28th of 2011, the docking sequence was almost done, but there was a problem when docking with the Stage 3 rocket. What would happen was that rocket would disappear between the actual docking and the next wave of aliens. Bob's plan, of course, was to fix that bug and then to finish up with the ramping of the difficulty level, and he would save the sound effects for last. He decided to use the um, built-in Tia sound on the 7800 rather than the pokey, basically because the arcade sounds were simple enough that he didn't want to require a pokey. On October 6th, oh, frustration abounds when Bob finds that he didn't have enough memory left to add high-score cartridge support, and he wondered whether there were any secret undocumented RAM locations that he might be able to use. After a few users said that high-score cartridge support is a mere nice-to-have feature rather than a gotta-have feature, Bob said that his OCD wouldn't allow him to not put high-score cartridge support in because all of his games up to that point had included it. He did find a way to accommodate high-score cartridge support, though, with the sacrifice being that the scrolling star field would start over every time you start a new game, rather than only when you first start up the console. Oh, boo-hoo. At this point, there were now three difficulty settings. There was normal, which was arcade difficulty, which means that the last enemy's speed would increase after the second round, and when the enemies wrap around at the bottom of the screen, the wraparound radius would increase with each new round. On easy difficulty, the last enemy doesn't get faster, and the previously mentioned wraparound radius stays the same. On hard difficulty, the last enemy gets faster after the first two rounds, and then the last two enemies get faster for the next two rounds, and that pattern would repeat until four out of eight enemies got faster. The enemy's wraparound radius would start off bigger than at normal difficulty level and would increase with every round. At this point, all Bob had left to do after fixing the docking bug was to put in the music. On October 10th, the first release candidate was posted, along with Bob's venting about the difficulty of working with the sounds in the game. 
The Tia chip had a pretty limited range, so Bob had to do some note mixing and other tricks to make the sound not only similar to that of the arcade version, but also keeping it in tune. And uh, this isn't the first time I happened across somebody talking about trying to keep music in tune on the Tia chip. Apparently, it's hard for all 2600 and 7800 developers. But Bob also took the opportunity to feel proud of himself because all the sounds and enemy movements in the Commodore 64 version and BBC Micro version of Moon Cresta hardly resembled those of the arcade version, unlike the 7800 version he was working on. Atari Age user Vector Gamer noted that there were some timing and speed occurrences that were different from how the arcade version handled it. But Bob said, well, I didn't really have a choice but to program the game that way because I have less vertical space to work with than the arcade version has. And it turned out that even if Bob were to move the score from the top of the screen over to the side of the screen so he'd have more vertical room, he would only free up 8 vertical pixels, but he needed 40 to make it arcade perfect. But later that day, Release Candidate 2 was posted, with new fixes including Mark Oberhäuser's suggestion of returning to the splash screen after the game ends. Easy difficulty was made easier than before. Bob's actual words were, I thought it should reflect it actually being easier. And some of the other changes he made included improved collision detection with your shots and an improved transition from the high score cartridge screen to the splash screen after you enter your initials. Um, unfortunately, though, there was one bug. There is a message that says enjoy another game and it's supposed to occur at 30,000 points, but the release candidate actually had it occurring only at 10,000 points. So Release Candidate 3, which was posted later the same day, fixed that little issue. And there was also a picture of the cartridge with mocked up artwork posted there. In the early morning of October 11th, Release Candidate 4 was posted with an issue fixed that would not play the intro music if you started a new game while there were already other sounds happening. A few hours later, Bob posted Release Candidate 5, which added a missing exclamation point to the write-on message on the screen after you do a successful docking. And he also tweaked the laser cannon sounds to be as close to that of the arcade version as possible. And he also included a mind-blowing 27 screenshots later on. On October 13th, Bob announced that he was ready to accept payments from people who asked to be put on the waiting list for a cartridge. He posted a picture of the 20 cartridges he had made up to that point, and they all had custom labels on them. The asking price at the time was $25 plus $2 shipping within the United States, $4 outside of the United States. He stopped taking the orders after the 52nd order because simply he ran out of parts and wasn't able to make more cartridges. On October 17th, at Bob's request, Mark Oberhäuser posted a picture of his Mooncresta box design, along with his design for the Super Circus Atari Age box. Kevin Most 3 also posted his own version of the box artwork specifically for use in the Xbox 7800 emulator. And uh, his design actually more resembled a vintage Atari 7800 silver design with a silver background and red trim. On October 22nd, after several Atari Age users posted their thanks for the cartridges, Bob posted a video of the gameplay, which uh, it's kind of unusual because usually Trevor does that. But anyway, October 27th happened, and Atari Age user Mimo, after Bob asked, test the PAL version of Moon Cresta and very enthusiastically claimed that it was working well. November 12th, Bob said, oh my god, somebody found a bug on the seventh level. It took until November 12th, again, November 12th, before someone actually was able to get to level 7 in easy mode. And uh, the bug also happened in level 6 in normal mode. And that is a testament to how challenging the game is. What was the bug? Well, it involved the placement of the rocket after the enemies respawned. And it turned out to be the result of a byte overflow error, which is the same kind of problem that would cause kill screens on many classic arcade games such as Dig Dug and Pac-Man. Bob posted not only a bug fix for that, but also a tweak that made hard difficulty even more difficult, but you would have to clear the first round of 10 waves of enemies before you'd notice it. Bob offered to have cartridge owners send their cartridges back for a reburn if they wanted to. He used erasable, programmable, read-only memory for that, so it was possible to erase them and reprogram them. 
On December 1st, Bob posted a PDF version of the manual for Moon Cresta and three of his other games, uh, which other ones I don't know because they've since been deleted. But uh, Bob said, you know what, this is a first draft, expect things to change. Eventually, Moon Cresta was added to the Atari Age store, but I'm not really sure when that happened. The earliest review posted was from November 30th, 2012. The game is still available in the Atari Age store, and I will post a link to that as well as to Mark Oberhäuser's website where you can order the box he made for the game if you wish to have the box. And uh, this is a reminder to regular listeners of this podcast and a heads up for new listeners. If you live in the United States, you cannot use the online order form on Mark's site to order the box. You actually have to send Mark a separate email. And Moon Cresta was one of eight titles that was eventually released on the very limited edition multi-cart Bob DiCrescenzo collection, released in 2014 to commemorate the 30th anniversary of the Atari 7800's original release. Unfortunately, though, on that multi-cart, Moon Cresta has a bug in which your rocket may blow up for no reason at all at a random time. The standalone version of Moon Cresta, however, does not have that bug. So that's all I have to say about the development of Moon Cresta, and now I better go feed my beagle before some really nasty stuff happens. I'll be back in just a moment with listener feedback. Okay, as I speak, the beagle is now eating her supper, so I will take this opportunity to read and respond to some feedback I got about Moon Cresta. And let's start with Atari Age Toilet Tunes. Moon Cresta has that late 70s, early 80s arcade vibe. I don't remember playing it in the arcades, but it has that nostalgic arcade feel. Classic 2D space shooter. And yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking about to uh, Toilet Tunes. I've never, ever, ever, ever seen Moon Cresta in the arcades. In fact, I don't even think Galloping Ghost has it, which is pretty much the world's largest arcade with over 600 games. In fact, I'm checking Orcade.com right now. Let's see. Moon Cresta. Let's see. Orcade.com lists three locations. Yeah. And one of them is in the Czech Republic. And uh, the other two are Pinball PA in Alakipa, Pennsylvania, and Z82 Retrocade in Sherwood, Arkansas, I think. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, uh, our, I don't know how to pronounce it, Arcadery, Arcadery, I don't know, in uh, Czech Republic. But that's it. Not a common game at all. It wasn't then, and it isn't now. But yeah, it absolutely does feel like a classic nostalgic game. Thank you, Toilet Tunes. And uh, moving on to Jinx. Moon Cresta is a classic space shooter that has lots of attention to detail when it comes to enemy movement and everything. As with all of Bob's games, the small details of how the game is played is always fine-tuned until it feels right and like the original. If you are a Moon Cresta fan, you will want to get a copy of Moon Cresta 7800. Now, thank you for that, Jinx. And I guess guess you're right. Uh, I've, I've only played Moon Cresta a few times in MAME just to do some comparisons, but yeah, he pretty much nailed it with this one. No big honking surprise there. (laughs) And I'm laughing because I'm seeing cousin Vinny's feedback right out of the corner of my eye. Cousin Vinny says, I hate moon Cresta. I hate moon Cresta. And, uh, he capitalized the R in Cresta and I hate moon Cresta. I I hate moon Cresta. He keeps changing the capitalization. (laughs) I hate moon Cresta. That being said, it's a well-done version, and at one point it tells you right on. So that part appeals to my Funk Soul Brother side. <laughs> Funk Master V, thank you, Cousin Vinny. <laughs> and I cannot disagree with any of that. I mean, the thing is, Moon Cresta, think about Moon Cresta, whether it's the 7800 version or the arcade version, challenging is putting it nicely. It's, it's being generous. It is freaking hard, 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 hard. Good luck getting that 30,000 point bonus, even in the easy setting, really. And uh, moving on to Save2600, who says, I'm sure Bob's port is spot on, to a fault in this case, haha. But Moon Cresta is certainly not a favorite arcade game of mine either. Not a fan of the goofy patterns and movements of the enemies and the high-pitched sound effects irritate too. Never got into the game then or now. 
one of the few, and I mean just about the only Pac-Man Plus game I've passed on. Wow. And once again, I can't, I can't really say I blame you because again, this is a very difficult game. It feels impossible. Especially if you have it in the uh, Bob DiCrescenzo collection multi-cart when your ship will randomly explode. But yeah, it is hard. It is hard, 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 hard. But again, if you are a fan of the arcade Moon Cresta, you will also be a fan of the 7800 Cresta. So I agree with Jinx in that regard. And uh, let's see what Trevor has to say. Uh, Moon Cresta is a shooter sporting substance over Flash with a tough-as-nails challenge this is not a pickup and blast away with a hail of bullets or lasers where a player finds themselves racking up points and progressing relatively quickly. It takes time and effort to learn how to avoid being caught in enemy patterns, mapping movements, and attacks accordingly. Arcade lovers of the game rejoice. This is a near carbon copy of the arcade original and does not disappoint in faithfully bringing forth the arcade challenge and feel. Ships, multi-parts, and stage handling is all intact. Enemy movement is as exact as possible with Bob taking the arcade ROMs, disassembling the source code, obtaining proper enemy movement tables, and modifying to fit within the 320 mode of the console, respectively. Docking, of course, is present as well. Easy, normal, and hard difficulties are available choices. Normal provides the closest arcade experience. For those of you who have never played the arcade, this is the one title where it is likely such a person wants to start uneasy. Many who have played this game will tell you it is difficult and presents quite the challenge. If a person is not big into shooters, especially difficult one, this is very much likely not the game for them. However, if an individual is looking for a challenging shooter and does not care about the presence of dazzling frills and special effects, this is one to tackle. Trevor, I think you hit the nail on the head right there. Yeah, it is a carbon copy of the original, absolutely. And yes, everybody, listen to Trevor. If you haven't played Moon Cresta yet, play it on easy first. Get used to the patterns there. Then move to normal difficulty and hang on to your hat. In fact, you might want to buy a hat so you have one to hang on to. So thank you. And Trevor, as usual, a wonderful, wonderful feedback there. And moving on to some more wonderful feedback from Swami on Atari Age. The arcade game appears to show an influence from several other sibling games. Galaxian, Phoenix, Demon Attack, a Phoenix clone, but I mention it because of the splitting aliens. Appeals on the challenging side of this genre. Has aliens that are more nimble than Galaga and the outer fluff doesn't count. It's surprising how many times the alien sneaks between the twin blasts. I like the whimsical-looking aliens thrown into the mix. Like so many shooters, you can only shoot one barrage at a time, although it could be one to five shots. One thing that makes it easier is the twin blasters that were a precursor to Galaga's docked twin ship, speaking of precursors. Given how easy it is to shoot blasts on either side of the aliens, I haven't decided if it gets harder or easier as the blasters get further apart. A well-done game, and I found the music enjoyable. And I found your feedback enjoyable, Swami. Thank you so much for uh, for chipping in there. And yeah, that is something worth mentioning is that it does. there is kind of a new challenge when you're dealing with a rocket that fires on the two sides because you kind of have to adjust your aiming accordingly. Like you're not just going to aim for a enemy that's just straight ahead. You want to aim off to the side a little bit. And what's really cool is when you have multiple cannons working, you can knock out two aliens in one shot. So that's pretty cool. Now, when I had asked for the feedback, I had asked for both Bentley Bears Crystal Quest and Moon Cresta since I both had them on the schedule. So Gambler172, Walter, kind of mixed in a little bit of each. He says, normally Bentley is the best 7800 game ever, but for some reason, Moon Cresta is my number one. Both games are absolutely top. Well, Wow, that's uh, an interesting little opinion there, Gambler172. That he, he feels Bentley Bear's the best, but his favorite is Mooncrest. That is the first time I heard someone say Mooncrest is their number one favorite. So, uh, hey, thank you for your thoughts on that, Walter. I got an email from TrekMD about Mooncrest, and uh, Eugenio says, Hi, Sean. Hi, Eugenio. I hope all is well. I got back from PRGE, Portland Retro Gaming Expo, last week, and I have to say I had a great time and grew my collection of homebrew games quite a bit 
with the new releases for the Atari 2600, Jaguar, Genesis, and Intellivision, I had the chance to meet various folks who worked at Atari when the company was at its peak, and I even got some cards signed by folks from Atari, Activision, and Imagic. I'm already saving the date for next year's PRGE, October 19th to October 21st. I also had a chance to listen to the last episode, and as I was listening, I made the same mistake as you when it came to the onion rings and fat axle. I did not look at the manual either and totally forgot that they were not donuts. When I heard you correct yourself, I cringed as I realized I made the same mistake and I wondered what you'd do when you read my feedback. Needless to say, I just laughed with the line you inserted at the spot. Onion rings! Anyhow, enough about fat axles, not donuts, and on to something more spacey. Mooncresta. Mooncresta was released in the arcades by Nichibutsu in 1980. I did see this game back then and got to play the arcade machine. My cousin was the first to see it, and she made it look easy. Boy, easy it was not. So I never did play it much until Bob released the port for the 7800. The game is another space shooter, but one with a somewhat unique concept. Instead of the player having three lives per se with one ship, the player has three different ships, each of which represents a life. The ship starts off as a huge thing that splits before the first wave, so the player controls a small vessel with one single cannon. Destroy all the aliens in the first four waves, and then you get to dock with the second half of your ship. Of course, you must dock properly, or you'll lose a life. Oh, I forgot to mention that. Thank you for uh, for saying that, Trek MD. Finish two more waves, and then you get to dock with the final piece of the ship. With the completed ship, you now have five shots, but you are also a far larger target for the aliens that come dropping at you in kamikaze attacks. The game ends once all your ships have been destroyed. This 7800 port really captures the craziness and difficulty of the arcade very well. The aliens look great and move in the same obtuse patterns they use in the arcade. Unlike the arcade, thankfully, Bob has added three difficulty levels to the game, easy, normal, hard, so players like me can get to play more than a few waves when playing in the easy difficulty. Yes, I did say easy, in quotes, because even this difficulty is, well, difficult. Despite the Tia chip, Bob did a really good job adapting the arcade sounds. I guess it helps that the arcade didn't really have some dramatically harmonic or sophisticated sounds to begin with. Overall, though, this is a superb port, which really captures the arcade game details very, very well. Fans of the arcade version will certainly appreciate this, and less experienced gamers will need to learn things in the easy mode, but will certainly enjoy this gem. Until next time, Eugenio. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to comment, uh, Eugenio. Now, TrekMD's last point there. Less experienced gamers will need to learn things in the easy mode. Yes. Yes. And uh, I should specify less experienced Mooncresta gamers. I mean, even if you're a very experienced gamer, but if you're not very fluent in Mooncresta, I truly think you'll have a very hard time with this at first as well. And something that came across my mind here... Right before I started college, I went back to my old grade school and uh, visited with uh, probably the favorite teacher I ever had and chatted with him for a little bit. And he showed me that he had just learned how to juggle. He took out some like really old oranges that had been sitting in the classroom for a while and he juggled them. It was three of them. And he told me that they had a special assembly for the kids one day when they brought in somebody who would teach them how to juggle. And he said the trick to it was that you would start with these really, really lightweight handkerchiefs that would fall down really, really slow. And once you kind of got used to how they fell down, you would eventually figure out patterns and things, and it would make adapting to heavyweight objects like balls and oranges and stuff a lot easier. And that's exactly how Mooncresta works on the 7800. You'll kind of get a feel for the patterns of the kamikazeing aliens, I guess. You'll know how each of them behaves, and you'll eventually get a feel for it. Having said that, am I any better at this than I was, say, um, probably about three years ago before I first played it? Oh, heck no. Heck no. <laughs> and uh, Portland Retro Gaming Expo, yeah, I would really, really love to go to that someday. I would love to go to Portland Retro Gaming Expo because, well, it's probably the biggest show out there. Uh, Midwest Gaming Classic out here is pretty big, too, but I think Portland is even bigger. I just kind of made a brief remark earlier uh, when I, I was just talking to my wife. I was like, oh, man, I, they're having Portland Retro Gaming Expo this week, and I'd love to go sometime. 
And she's like, hmm, well, let's think about that for maybe next year. And why? My wife is not into gaming at all. She doesn't care at all. But she loves Portland. <laughs> and uh, any excuse to go there, she'll be happy to entertain. And um, yeah, I love Portland, too. I, I, we went there a couple of years ago. It was, it's a great little town to visit. Uh, if you've never been to Portland, Oregon, if you have the slightest interest in reading, you got to go to Powell's City of Books. You're just never going to want to leave ever, ever, ever. Oh, yeah. And maybe you want to go to Ground Control Arcade as well. But uh, Siri, I mean, as much into video games as I am, I loved Powell's City of Books so much better. Oh, man. Anyway, that's all I had to say about that. Um, let's see. Moving on. Yeah. Sorry that uh, you and I made the same mistake with Fat Axel there, Eugenio, but uh, glad I could help correct you. And uh, again, thank you so much for your thoughts on Fat Axel and uh, Mooncresta. Very, very insightful as usual. And that's it for feedback. And thank you, everybody, for your thoughts, your opinions, your everything. And so ends episode 23 of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. My opinion of Mooncresta, I think I've pretty much said my piece, but hey, just to kind of uh, reiterate, I haven't decided if I like Mooncresta or hate it, because it is a very well done homebrew. It's absolutely top notch, which is not a huge shock given the person who made it for the 7800. But the thing is, it is so freaking hard. It is absolutely hard. And I absolutely agree with Swami's assertions because as I was playing the game, I was thinking, okay, this looks kind of like Galaxian. Oh, this is definitely Demon Attack. Oh, it looks like so many games. And it does look like what they did was they reprogrammed Galaxian to make it a little bit more bizarre, I guess, to be honest. But hey, give it a shot. It's in the Atari Age store. Check out Moon Cresta, and if uh, you prefer emulation, you can get the ROM on Atari Age. Just do a quick search for it. You'll be able to find it pretty quickly. But uh, yeah, that's uh, my final thought. And uh, for the next episode, we're going to do another Bob DiCrescenzo title, and this one is a fairly new one. It is called either Bentley Bear's Crystal Quest or Crystal Quest or Crystal Quest featuring Bentley Bear, whatever, whatever. And I believe for episode 25, for episode 25... I will talk about Worm. In the meantime, a few people that I want to thank, and ergo I will, and this time I will go alphabetically. I am talking about people who have sponsored this podcast over patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash homebrew78. Thank you very much to Ed Landon Controllers, Gray Defender, Jimmy G, Kyle Etter, Richard Grounds, and Richard Valdez. Thank you so much, everybody. I really appreciate your support there. I appreciate everybody's support, whether it's monetary or just plain moral support, as it were. I do appreciate it, and I thank you very, very much for listening. And if you wish to contact me, you can email me at homebrew78 at fab4it.com, and that is spelled F-A-B, and then the actual number four, and then it.com. You can get the show notes at homebrew78.fab4it.com. My Twitter handle is homebrew78. My YouTube channel is homebrew7800. And thanks again for listening, everybody. I'm really looking forward to talking to you again next time, especially given the game that's coming up. So everybody, please be good to each other, be good to yourselves, and be good to these hardworking homebrew developers and give them the support they deserve. Thanks again, everybody. I'll talk to you right before Turkey Day. Turkey Day.